This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about movies on the big screen, screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the land of the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and later tonight I'll be speaking with filmmakers John Allen Simon and Elizabeth Carr, who are responsible for the recent 4K restoration of Dennis Hopper's 1980 classic, Out of the Blue, which is exclusively screening at Thornbury Picture House later this week. It is an exceptional um, film, and I highly recommend you snap up a ticket to this Victorian premiere before it sells out. Um, and last month, Goran Stalevsky's tender, clever, funny and quintessentially Melbourne queer coming-of-age story um, of an age um, opened Melbourne International Film Festival. The, film, the, feature, the festival also featured Stalevsky's phenomenal long-form debut, You Won't Be Alone, a dark folloric, um, folkloric tale set in 19th century Macedonian village. The film is a powerful exploration of the human experience and one of my favourite films of the year. So it is a great honour to be joined now by the writer and director, Goran Stalevsky. Goran, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I, um, there is a real horrible tendency in film criticism to only ever acknowledge feature-length films, mm-hmm. which uh, when, whenever we're discussing a, a director's work. So I just want to first note that over the course of your career, you have made about 25 short films, which have played at over 200 festivals worldwide. Uh, that is remarkably prolific. <laughs> Before- I should mention the first 20 didn't play in almost any. So. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. It still uh, counts. It's, uh, it's really amazing. I tried to do the maths on it. I was like, that is an insane output. Um, now, before we get into your two feature-length films, I'd, I'd kind of first love to know what first drew you to cinema. Mm, um, I was always a bookish child. I was drawn to stories and, you know, getting kind of transported to other worlds. Um, usually, other story worlds, I should say. I was always drawn to drama more than fantasy, which I think was unusual for, like, a six-year-old boy who wanted to watch Gone with the Wind <laughs> over and over again. But, um, true story. Um, but, yeah, it was around the time we moved here. Uh, I was 12. Uh, we migrated to Melbourne, and, um, I got a half-price coupon for, like, the Epping Cinemas. Oh, right. <laughs> Uh, so I could go watch movies for five bucks, uh, which was about the only thing we could afford at the time. So I went to the movies every week and then for, for a few weeks and then started being curious. I think the Oscars were happening around the same time. And I was just uh, curious about film history and all these, you know, um, I think Titanic was the big movie of the moment at that time. And then I was curious about the context of all these other films that, that came before it. And a lot of them were just at my local library uh, on VHS and I started borrowing them, and it just escalated. And, you know, 
a year later, or was it like Video Busters Thomas Town going, Hi, do you have the battleship Potemkin? I'm gonna spell Potemkin. <laughs> wow, you got there fast. <laughs> yeah, they didn't, but they ordered it from Video Busters Coburg. Um, so, yeah. Talking of video stores, I feel like that's was also my entry into film, and it seems mm. really sad to think that there's so few video stores. I think there's one in Melbourne mm. still standing. It was also my entry into like paid work. I was a video store clerk, so I'm like oh, a cliche right. upon a cliche. Like, <laughs> you so, are a cliche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so interesting because um, you know reviewing your work, um, there are of course. Um, we're not going to have time, unfortunately, to go through all of your short films. But mm. on paper, your two feature films seem like they couldn't be any more different. Um, one set in suburban Melbourne about a young gay man coming to terms with his sexuality. And another, uh, this folkloric tale set in a Macedonian village um, in the 19th century. However, like looking at them and watching them so close together, there are some really strong stylistic similarities and um, even thematic ones as well, I, I would say. Um, so both both of your films were uh, – you have the cinematographer Matthew Chung for both of those. Mm. Um, did you work with other team members as well? There was there uh, – Bethany and, Ryan, the production as designer. Yes, yeah. of course. So and for Chris, both of those. Yeah, and Christina is the other author, I would say, on this film. Christina Seaton is the producer on both of them. Yeah. Um, and Sam Jennings is the other producer. Um, Christina was – more on set because they make so many movies one of them has to be on the other one usually <laughs> well I'm, I'm interested because you have your you have this team that have created very different worlds but there are like I said this sort of almost signature style to both of them um, how would you define your approach to filmmaking and, and the vision that you create with your team on screen um, I mean we talk a lot about um, you know what we want the film to look like and feel like um, to an extent, um, but a lot of the time it's just more about uh, uh, filling in this universe of the story and the characters, so everyone knows every single thing about them. Um, and you know, especially like Bethany, the production designer, will probably know more about it than than me by about halfway through pre-production. <laughs> um, and then a lot of it is about creating a certain approach and like informing the crew as they're coming on about the way we film, which is often. We're quite loose on set in the sense that, like, we don't try to follow a strict continuity. Sometimes we start rolling before, you know, uh, I, I don't rehearse. I just shoot straight away. Oh, wow. um, I often don't say cut, so a scene can run for ages and actors can improvise. Um, it's kind of almost like we try to create, like, a 360-degree space on set. Uh, with Maddie C., the cinematographer, and Beth, the production designer, to sort of so that the actors have freedom and then the crew is briefed and we all kind of have to manipulate ourselves around them, the actors, so they have space. Mm. Um, and you're kind of almost sort of creating a, a, a lived universe for them and then shooting a documentary style. So we often end up getting like five different angles within the same shot. Wow. Um, yeah. And don't really stop for it. Like sometimes I go, okay, go back, reset a few, a few minutes. Like sometimes I talk during the shot to the actors uh, if they want me to. Um, I, I try to adjust to what they prefer. Um, it happened on my third movie as well, which I shot with a different team. Um, but I think it's more about organizing, like working with what's in front of us when we find out, because mm. there's too many things you just cannot control. Yeah. And I think I have a plan, I have a concrete, you know, shot list upon shot list that's been revised ten times, and then on the day of shooting, 
I just throw away the shot list. Um, <laughs> and we just go, what's in front of us? How do we capture it? Um, and it's a very instinctive experience. And it's like, you usually have like two seconds to make a decision. Um, mm. And sometimes, you know, like, Maddie C won't wait for me. He'll just run over there and get that angle, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but also, I'm like, how did you know that that's what I would want? But of course he does. We've worked so long together and kind of, you know, share a brain after a while. <laughs> and yeah, that's kind of the process. But interestingly, uh, I just showed a clip. I'm just editing the third feature at the moment and I showed a clip to a friend of mine uh, who actually acted in Of An Age. And he said, God, it's uncanny. Like, it's so clearly your film, even though it's yeah. this time present day Macedonia um, in a very different under, you know, subculture. And yeah. I, one of the things that stood out to me um, was that both of um, both of an age and you won't be alone have featured a lot of extreme close-ups um, that give us this spectacular access to the micro gestures that play out on characters' faces. And I, I heard somewhere that you described your work as being relationship-based um, is what draws you to film. And I, I just thought it was interesting because these techniques, you know, the extreme close-up isn't used that much in, in cinema. And I, it was just interesting how uh, when I watched both of these films, I actually thought they were shot on film. Mm. <laughs> we are talking about this off air before, mm. but they're not shot on film. No. They're digital. <laughs> we do not have those kinds of budgets at all. <laughs> so yeah. talk to me about creating that sense of, of at least a film aesthetic. Yeah. Well, actually, interestingly, um, I kind of figured out that power a close-up can have through um, – uh, I went back to watch some some films from the 1940s that I loved. This was just during a phase of unemployment. It wasn't in preparation for a movie. <laughs> I was just trying to get away from my day-to-day. Um, and I was watching so many of them. And even just like, there was, a, there was some love stories I was watching from the 40s. And they were just so much more kind of impactful and intimate, even though obviously they're so much more chaste and stylized. Mm. But something about them, I was like, what is going on? And it was like... Partly it was the shape of the screen. I hate to talk about aspect ratios, but genuinely, <laughs> like, you know, the, the that kind of academy ratio, a face just fills the screen, you see nothing else. So the mm. connection is just that much more immediate. And if it's two people, like, sharing a kiss, like, again, they fill the screen and there's nothing else. The rest of the world fades away. Mm. So I think, and I genuinely am going, like, the close-up is one of the most unique things the cinema can offer. Like, you, can't, you don't have it in theater. Um, and I think... Uh, going back to, you know, uh, a lot of the moments I remember are usually close-ups in films. Or, or I have to go back and realize, oh, that was a close-up. It's more like the feeling of it that I've retained. Yeah. And uh, Bergman, I love. In- Ingmar Bergman um, and Ingrid, for that matter. And um, <laughs> I-, I think how he constructed close-ups was very much um, an inspiration, I guess, um, years ago when I started trying to improve <laughs> my short films from what they previously were. And and I actually tend to shoot the close-ups first. Usually on set, you shoot the wide shot, and then you move in for the close-ups. Um, and the wide shot is seen as the master. But to me, I'm like, use the wide shot for three seconds, if at all. And usually, it's no longer even the opening shot. So I I shoot the close-ups first. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's always the most important part. And then, and on a low budget, it's a lot easier <laughs> to control and provide. And, yeah, and then I'm always like, oh, crap, I've shot too many close-ups. I need to figure out how to shoot this in the wide now because people will need a bit of context at some point. (laughs) 
I remember hearing um, a theorist, Marianne Doan, describe the close-up as monstrous. And I, I really love that idea of this, you know, big face staring down at us in yeah. these monstrous um, proportions. There's a primal power to it. I yeah. completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to talk a bit about primal power when we get into your, your next um, your film, You Won't Be Alone. If you've just tuned in, um, I'm speaking with the writer and director of You Won't Be Alone and of an age, Goran Stilevsky. Um, Goran, we, we, we kind of opened our chat with talking a little bit about your auteur style, if we can go to say that. Um, and, and we mentioned um, kind of this relationship-based approach to filmmaking in which you're, you're perhaps more focused on the intimacies of these characters that you're putting into the – you've got these extreme close-ups – um, I love that the two films that we're talking about, You Won't Be Alone and Of An Age, are so different <laughs> because I think it really speaks to your um, tremendous breadth of, of work that you've done prior to these two feature films, but also um, what your interests are as well. Um, I think let's let's just do a deep dive into You Won't Be Alone. Um, we're going to try not to do any spoilers. So <laughs> at the centre of these films, you have three women um, one of whom kind of remains somewhat peripheral figure, but nonetheless is is very significant to the trajectory of the main protagonist. Um, firstly, how did this story come about? I know it's based on folklore, but can you tell us how you first arrived at this? Um, I'm not sure how that um, reputation uh, came together. It wasn't really based on folklore. I made it oh, up entirely. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but it's, yeah, it's it the was. first it thing that's so always written in every review. And I'm just like, um, I never said, I mean, I it, I don't really, it's more just like. Oh, we just took it for facts. No, everyone's Stupid Westerners that, like, that were like, must be real. No, no. <laughs> it's really flattering because I wanted it to feel like it's, you know, something that's like an artifact of that particular yeah. time and place. Yeah. And I worked really hard to make it feel like it's been a story that's been told. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, that it's a mythology that existed. Um, it, it's not. I, I made it all of it up. <laughs> it's all lies. Yeah. No, the only uh, premise I took was, because um, uh, initially I was looking at, like, folktales from the region and didn't really get very far because not many were recorded or accessible to me. Um, and then I was looking at more historical records of witchcraft through the ages in that region, and the thing that struck me was that women who were accused of witchcraft were routinely accused of taking the shape of another human being mm. or an animal. Mm. And I, I really just wanted one little ingredient to make it a premise that's sort of, you know, transporting to another kind of reality. But mm. everything else I wanted to keep a very much um, uh, kind of, uh, set up within the day-to-day -day life or what day-to-day -day life felt like in mm. that time and place in you know a mountain village in 19th century Eastern Europe. And then, um, yeah, I just ran with it. Basically, it's the exact same universe except certain uh, women, or I should say entities, have <laughs> the uh, ability to transform. Uh, uh, if they kill someone, th and th they can then absorb their body and transform into them. So... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got an inside scoop, but maybe I just haven't done enough research. <laughs> no, no, no. This is literally, it's, I think it's even in some of the PR materials. I was like, how did that come about? <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. It's fine. Well, I, I found it, um, I really found it in a very challenging watch. We were talking off air about watching this as a woman who is currently six months pregnant. And mm. there are some very 
confronting scenes and and um, elements to to you won't be alone. But more than anything, and I, I kind of always push against when films are described as horrors because I I think that sometimes we have this idea of what that means and this idea of like oh it must have these beats to it, and your film seems to exist. Almost kind of, and I heard it compared to a Terence Malick film in the sense of you seem to be preoccupied with this sense of human experience and there's a lot of humility to this film, um, yeah, to this film that I wasn't expecting to be taken on such an emotional <laughs> roller coaster. I was devastated after watching it and I don't want to give anything away, but something that really stood out to me and I, I suppose I was trying, I was reflecting a lot on your work I read recently, I've been doing some work on disability studies and something, a term that's used that's actually borrowed from queer studies is passing, this idea of passing mm. as a yeah. way to, yeah, put on another skin almost and mm. that happens very literally in, in mm. your film. <laughs> um, I wondered firstly whether you're familiar with this this notion of passing yeah. and, and yeah. whether that was something you yeah, And lived out. it. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also funny because it happens in my second film and in my third film now that I think of it. There we go. There's a dramatic <laughs> through line. And it's very literally the next one as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it was actually, in my case, um, and I hate to talk about these things, but whatever, like also just being a migrant and trying to fit in. Um, and and it, it's not even, it wasn't even an intellectual process. It was just this sense of this experience of, you know, c- coming here and then... Um, it was the way communication and interaction happened was just this whole other world that, you know, was very foreign to me. The language wasn't. I could speak English when I yeah, arrived. That yeah. wasn't a problem. But there was just, you know, interaction was just so different to what I was used to. And I come from a very small town. It wasn't even about, like, entirely about being, you know, Macedonian or whatever. I literally came from a very, very small town. And suddenly I was, you know, in a tiny suburb, but still in Melbourne. Um, and just sort of, like, I think experiencing that and sort of resisting it but also being drawn to it in a weird way and I think that's uh, another thing of like and also wanting to not really stand out Um, Mm. I spent most of my life really not wanting to stand out innately Um, and you know I'm very like super comfortable with my ethnicity and my sexuality it's not that you know um, I'm I don't want to say I'm proud of them because I always feel like it's not about pride or shame. It's like my hair color. I'm very comfortable with them. And I think (laughs) I've got a lot of benefits from like just lived experience Mm. that I really genuinely treasure. So I'm very happy about these things. But in terms of like whenever I meet new people, I always want to just not be seen as different. Um, It's an innate thing. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, it's how I experienced it. And I think, um, yeah, it's obviously a very shaping principle of you won't be alone and of an age. But I'm literally talking about this, like, you know, years after I wrote it. Um, when I wrote I write from instinct. I don't really think about I, – not ideology or intellect at all. I genuinely just go from feelings and pursuing feelings. Um, so I, I actually never – it's only after I've written something, like, years later that I click about where it came from in yeah. a very literal way. Like, yeah. uh, the love story within this film – it took me years to realize. Both me and my husband, like, I just sent him a screenshot of the script um, of a particular scene the day I was shooting it. And he's like, oh, my God, you're, like, writing about me. And I'm like, <laughs> I didn't even realize that. <laughs> you know? And this is, like, five years after I wrote the script and after he'd read it. Like, he read it that week. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Oh, it's lovely to hear about those processes because I think that for both films, you know, of an age and you won't be alone, there's, they're both uh, so rich for exploration and I realise we're only going to really scratch the surface uh, tonight. Um, but, you know, the one thing that really stood out to me is that your willingness to have female characters that are quite, you know, in some ways unlikable and quite difficult. And I think because we're not used to seeing female characters with rich, complex backstories, they often get labelled um, as kind of like bad women or like unruly women. But I think there's so much more going on there in this film and particularly you've got such a strong cast. I, I cannot believe I, I, the characters just sink uh, sink, sorry, the actors just sink into the characters. I, I was really um, Numi Rapace. I mean, she's exceptional. Um, you've got Sarah Klimoska. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I, I really was captured by all of these women in this really interesting kind of trinity, and they are quite um, unlikable, but in a they're allowed to be kind of angry and I think that trying on different skins is really interesting because there's that frustration of why can't I be in mm. the skin that I am in. Yeah. <laughs> I um yeah, I just I, it really struck me. Um, it's a pattern in my work actually. Like I, I realized that a couple of years ago. It, there's two things I specialize in and one of them is difficult women, the other one is gay sex. <laughs> um, so Great combo. The, the next film has both of them in Oh, wonderful. Yeah. But I actually just genuinely think to me like um w- in terms of, and I get very frustrated with a lot of talk about identity and representation because I just find it very performative um, and just not very productive or interesting. But, like, to me, like, actual equal representation is when you can depict someone who is an other or a minority, whether it's based on gender or ethnicity or sexuality or race, when this character exists and they can be as fucked up as, you know, anyone on Mad Men on Breaking Bad. Yeah. And yeah. like, you know, wh- uh, my if I have any aim, and it's not, I don't want it to be ideological, but like to me, you know, I like to make films that are universal and about the human condition. Um, and there's this thing, like if you make a film about a rich white straight guy, you're making a film about the human condition. Whereas if you make a <laughs> film about a woman, it's a woman's film. If it's about a gay, it's a queer film. Your niche. Yeah. Whereas I'm just like, um, yeah, no, I'm in a lot of minorities, but there's nothing niche about my experience. My feelings yeah. aren't niche. They're universal. And yes. like, some of them are f- frankly fucked up. And yeah. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> I, I want to have all of my, you know, complexities and contradictions. So, yeah. And, and, you know, I think a lot of my brain in the way I see it is very female. So I end up writing uh, a lot of the, thoughts and feelings that I need to process, you know, when I'm writing kind of fit easier within a female character mm. if we're thinking in a binary sense. Um, so it, com- it comes from there. But um, but again, I, I don't know. I don't really tend to go into ide- ideology. I, I really don't find it productive. I, I think when it comes to art, like, ideology needs to be about something you work on as a person and then the art needs to come out of yeah. an unconscious part of you. So, yeah, you know. and you touched upon there what you're working on next. Before we wrap up, I'd <laughs> love to hear more about this project that's in the works. Can yeah, you tell us a little I, bit more? I don't normally like to talk about it too much, <laughs> especially like, you know, it depends what, not only what day, but what time of day you're talking to me while I'm editing. <laughs> if I'm in the middle of a scene that's just not quite cutting together, I'm going to be very cranky. Um, so it's it's set in, it's in present day Macedonia. It's uh, about a qu- queer woman, a social worker who kind of, um, has a big house and over the years she's let a lot of uh, young queer people stay there because mm. they've been kicked out of home mm. um, and it's kind of become this rumbunctious place kind of like a safe house but not a formal one 
and her partner, who is uh, Roma, which is commonly known as Gypsy, uh, pass passes away and leaves behind two girls for her to look, look after. Um, and she doesn't want to be a mother, and the girls do definitely do not want her as a mother. Mm. Um, and it's in a society where you can't really, definitely, you can't, you can barely be openly queer, much less raise kids. Um, she literally has to marry her gay best friend um, and organize. Uh, anyway, it, it, the situation <laughs> escalates. So um, no one believes me when I say this, but it's mainly a very black comedy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I would still say it's a drama. There's a lot of devastating things that happen in it, and we honor the characters' feelings. But genuinely, like, half the crew individually came up to me after the shoot and went, did we just make a comedy? I'm like, yes, I was telling you all along. It's a funny film. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, there is a lot of humor in, in your films, um, even if it comes out in dark ways. Um, I'll definitely be checking <laughs> it out. It never comes out in dark ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, for listeners who would like to check out You Won't Be Alone, it is screening um, at all local and independent cinemas from this Thursday, so make sure you check it out. Um, Goran, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford. Later this week, Melbourne audiences will be able to see the long-awaited 4K restoration of Dennis Hopper's 1980 directorial masterpiece, Out of the Blue, about a feisty, Elvis-obsessed young punk called CD, played by Linda Manns, whose charismatic, alcoholic father has recently returned to the family home. Out of the Blue is often referred to as Hopper's best work behind the camera and Manza's performance as this conflicted young girl negotiating parental neglect and acts of rebellion is absolutely phenomenal. It's a film that, despite being hugely influential, has not been widely distributed, particularly here in Australia, so it is very exciting that the Thornbury Picture House will be exclusively screening this film later this week for its Victorian premiere. To discuss the cultural impact of Out of the Blue and the process of restoring this masterpiece, I am now joined all the way from LA by filmmakers, partners in Discovery Productions and the restoration producers of Out of the Blue, John Allen Simon and Elizabeth Carr. Welcome to Primal Screen. Well, thank you, Flick. Hi, Flick. Nice to, nice to see you. I, <laughs> I was surprised that your show is called Primal Scream. Some of your listeners might know that the group Primal Scream did a, did a um, uh, song called Kill All Hippies where they excerpted some of the dialogue from the movie for their song. Yeah, it's fantastic having CV uh, <laughs> and this young girl reciting those very lyrics. Now, you have both been very influential figures in the restoration of this film. But before we get into that, I, I would love to talk about how Out of the Blue was first received by audiences back in 1980. Can you take us there? Well... We have to go actually a little earlier than when it was first received to when it was first made. Uh, Dennis Hopper had had, you know, the most amazing directorial debut of any filmmaker, really, with Easy Rider, which changed Hollywood and changed filmmaking forever. But he followed it up with a movie called The Last Movie, which uh, wrecked his career and earned him the animosity of all the studios. And he didn't. He wasn't really permitted to direct again. Uh, the last movie won a Critics Prize at Venice, but despite that, was shelved. He was hired just to play the dad in a movie that was then called CB. It was going to be a Canadian film, kind of a family drama like Ordinary People, uh, maybe suitable for Canadian television. 
And uh, the writer-director of it had cast Linda Manns as the daughter and Dennis as the father and Sharon Farrell as the mom. But he was fired a week into the production. They were going to shut it down. And the line producer, who had been Dennis's uh, line producer on both uh, Easy Rider and the last movie, uh, came to tell him, you know, we're, you're, you're going home. He hadn't shot a foot of film yet, Dennis, in the movie. Dennis said, hey, you know, I've gotten to know Linda. I can do something with this. If I can have creative control and start from scratch, uh, I'll take over as director. So he rewrote the movie over the weekend. He brought in the whole punk element, changed the script uh, really entirely, and began shooting. Um, and uh, the problem was uh, not how the movie turned out. It turned out great, and it was invited to Cannes. But the movie had been made under a tax shelter deal where, in Canada, where the investors got to write off a, a multiple of their investment based on the Canadian content and Canadian uh, filmmakers involved. But because Dennis was American, it lost its Canadian certification. So the investors were going from a guaranteed profit to a guaranteed loss. Uh, the Canadian government disowned the movie. It played can as a movie without a country. <laughs> and uh, it was shelved, uh, it, despite uh, being quite well received in Cannes. And I had distributed a movie in the U.S. called The Wicker Man. I'd been a film critic, and that movie did quite well. It was kind of a similar process of putting it together into the form that the uh, filmmaker Robin Hardy had originally intended. And I was uh, written up in Time magazine, and I was sent you know, like hundreds of unloved movies, most of which were unloved for good reason. <laughs> but Out of the Blue was one of them. And I watched it alone in a screening room and fell out of my seat. I was so in love mm. with this film. I really felt that uh, it had something to say. So um, I did without, I contacted Dennis and he was keen to help me release the movie. And I worked out a uh, piece between the filmmakers and the financiers and we went on the road with it. And uh, we played Boston where it broke the house record. One of the reasons being that uh, Jack Nicholson, we went up to his house in Aspen and recorded a radio spot with him talking about the movie, saying, I've never endorsed anything, not even of my own, but if a masterpiece comes along, people should see it. So it broke the house record in Boston. We played New York. The movie was seen in LA by Sean Penn, who then uh, kind of re helped resurrect Dennis's career by getting Orion to hire him to direct uh, to direct Colors. And um, we did a 35 millimeter restoration of the movie back in, uh, what was it, Elizabeth? 2009. 2009. And it was before Dennis got sick. Uh, so he was able to go to Paris, uh, where it was the centerpiece of a month-long Hopper retrospective uh, on his work and um, but two prints were struck and we played them very selectively at archives and museums and finally they were getting damaged and we thought it would be time to do a, a 4k restoration uh, and Elizabeth and I uh, initially went to foundations some of the ones who'd helped us with the 35 millimeter restoration but none of them wanted to support the project they were all over burdened with projects of their own. So we did a Kickstarter, which Elizabeth really spearheaded, 
yeah. then we were joined by two real uh, dynamos who love the movie, who helped support it financially and get the word out to new audiences on social media. Yeah, I was, um, the Kickstarter was great because we really found a community of people who like us, uh, loved the film and or just appreciated cinema and thought, I've heard about this film, but I've never seen it. And one day I was listening to the radio and heard Natasha Leone on Fresh Air and out of the blue, she started talking about Out of the Blue and how it was her favorite movie. She loves Linda Manns. And so I subsequently, John and I ran into her at something and I told her what we were doing. And she said, how can I help? I want to be involved. So Natasha Leone and, and Chloe Seveny, who they're best friends, and Chloe also adores Linda. They did Gummo together. So they actually joined John and I as the official presenters of the restoration and the 40th anniversary theatrical re-release. But it's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing about this film because when people see it, it, it for, for some people, it just you know, gets inside of them and, and, and moves them. If you go on Letterboxd, I don't know, you have that in Australia. Yeah, we don't do. do that. Yeah. So there's they have running two. water too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm showing me, but you know there's over two thousand uh, letterboxed reviews about Out of the Blue, and they are incredible. They're so articulate, but so heartfelt. Like I get it, CB. This film is about me. I understand, mm. and you know that's one of the reasons why John and I wanted to do this was so that a whole new generation could discover this film because mm. it's. It has huge fans, you know, like Natasha and Chloe and Richard Linkletter and uh, Julian Schnabel. But but young people who've never seen it now are getting it. And and like CB and Dennis Hopper are their new heroes. What do you think that is about? What do you think is this universality you've shown it over so many different decades in different settings at festivals? You've now got the restoration. What do you think is about the longevity of these characters that we're seeing played out on screen? For me, uh, one of the really seminal movies in my film education was Truffaut's 400 Blows and uh, Tony Richardson's Loneliness, the Long Distance Runner. And I think Out of the Blue really stands with both of those movies as as a uh, uh, an artistic triumph about the alienation of youth and the problems of adolescence uh, told in a way that's, you know, just beautiful. Dennis was, uh, has started getting recognition uh, the last uh, decade or so as the amazing photographer he was. And Toshin did a, an edition of his, of his work. And uh, just the way the movie is put together is just, um, it's just wonderful. Uh, so, from an aesthetic point of view and from a uh, thematic point of view, you know, I think I thought from the first moment I thought saw it, I thought the film was a masterpiece. And of course, Dennis pioneered the use of found music with Easy Rider. Nobody really had been using music the way he did. And um, one of the things that was going on when he was uh, had that weekend to rewrite the script was that he heard his friend Neil Young's song Out of the Blue on the radio. And as he would say it, uh, yeah, the king, Elvis, is gone but not forgotten. This is the story of Johnny Rotten. And he knew he wanted to bring punk into the movie. 
because Dennis was this, he wanted his movies to be time capsules. And um, one of the things that uh, so fascinated him was uh, culture in all its manifestations. When we went to New York to open the movie back in uh, 1982, you know, no one was talking about graffiti art, but Dennis kind of led me to all these little studios and into some of the most frightening neighborhoods <laughs> I've ever been in in my life. They look like war zones in New York to uh, talk to graffiti artists and take pictures and to collect art. He was an amazing art collector. And, uh, you know, Dennis uh, was also, I'd been a journalist and film critic uh, earlier uh, before I got into the film business. And uh, Dennis was one of the best listeners I've ever met. We always think of him as talking like in Apocalypse Now, where he's the kind of drugged out photographer <laughs> or, you know, saying man and easy writer. And truth is, he did say man a lot. <laughs> however, however, he would he would listen to people. It was really uh, sometimes, you know, it, he would wear my patience out. Uh, we'd be having to go somewhere, do something on the road and uh, people he had all the time in the world to talk to them. And I think Dennis, uh, you know, was always battling his own demons. One of Elizabeth's close friends and mentors was the great actor, Brian Cox, is the great actor, Brian Cox, was the star of Succession. And uh, he came to the premiere in New York and couldn't stop talking about the movie. He'd never seen it. So we, of course, said, well, want to help. So we recorded him talking about the film and we use that as an introduction which I think people who come to the uh, Thornberry Picture Show will probably get to see uh, Brian's exclusive theatrical introduction <laughs> to you out of yeah, the blue. And Brian, Brian Cox is a wonderful actor and a, a very and very critical too so he doesn't praise things willy-nilly and <laughs> he truly was he truly was blown away by both uh, Sharon Farrell's performance as which is heartbreaking mm -hmm. and Linda Manns and and Dennis Hopper's and one of the things that Brian said which I think is true is that the character that Dennis is playing uh, the it, that Dennis Hopper is playing that you know his life has unraveled and he can no longer drive a truck and there's nothing is happening for him and Brian felt it was Dennis's career as a filmmaker too because he was talking about himself and and John you've made that analogy too that where it's so much of what Dennis is playing on screen as CB's dad it was going on in his life as well and Dennis Dennis was uh, nominated for an academy award for Hoosiers and was in Rumblefish and Speed and of course Blue Velvet as Frank indelibly as the villain with the uh, with the uh, not oxygen, but I guess nitrous, nitrous oxide. Nitrous David oxygen. Lynch wanted it to be oxygen, <laughs> oxygen, and Dennis said, "I'll be talking like Mickey Mouse." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in any case, his performance—I felt from the moment I saw it, I thought it was the best performance of of his career and one of the best performances ever. And uh, it's it's so raw. Dennis felt, you know, Dennis didn't take notes from studios. He made the movies he wanted to make, but he collaborated very deeply with his actors, with actors that he worked with, like Cassavetes, like Altman, 
he was an actor's director and what mattered to him was that truth. He'd been in Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. I mean, he stretches so many different scenes mm. and so many different uh, eras and was so involved with all of them. But I remember him telling me that uh, he thought he was the best young actor in Hollywood till he met James Dean on Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, that's when, you know, Dean shared with him the work he'd been doing in The Method with Strasberg. And uh, that's when Dennis became a method actor, too. And um, he was really a mentor to me. I learned so much from Dennis. Um, I had a, uh, it's funny, I had a producing deal back then at Universal as a writer-producer. Dennis said, you should be directing, man. And I said, but, but I don't know anything about actors. He said, I can teach you. So on the road, he talked all the time to me uh, tried to make me understand his process as an actor and how to make actors comfortable. And uh, uh, one day I was in, I was having uh, breakfast. My partner at the time and I were having breakfast with the head of Universal. And uh, he said, well, you know, what, what are any projects you guys thinking of? I said, well, I'm distributing this little movie uh, that Dennis Hopper did called Out of the Blue. It's getting great reviews. Roger Ebert loves it. And Dennis and I are talking about some books we both love, maybe adapting. And I remember the look that came over to the, the head of the studio's face. And he put his cup of coffee down and he said, John, if you ever say the words Dennis Hopper in my presence, again, you will never step foot on the lot at Universal. <laughs> and I was waiting for a smile yeah. to come and it never did. And then Years later, I saw this amazing documentary called American Dreamer, which is about Dennis Hopper's process on the last movie, which was about a two-year process and really out of control. And the head of the studio, when, when, I, had, uh, when I was working uh, there on projects, had been a lower executive, a junior executive, and he'd been the guy assigned to the last movie, Dennis Hopper's movie that kept him out of the director's chair for 10 years. So uh, it was uh, clear that the books Dennis and I were talking about, we were not going to be doing it right. at Dennis Universal. Dennis Hopper was not going to be the password to get onto the Universal lot at he, that time. He, he was not <laughs> but, going to be the but deal. But I'll tell you one, one thing that there's so much to talk about, but one story that John has told me that I love is when, when he first saw Out of the Blue and was so blown away from it. And remember, this was a movie that, although it had been a huge success at Cannes, it was shelled because it had all these problems. It was, uh, you know, the Canadian financing was all messed up. But also in Reagan's America, it was too gritty. The, mm. the independent cinemas didn't want to play it. But anyway, John Cott contacted Dennis Hopper and uh, they got together and Dennis went up to John's office and uh, it turns out that John's office at that time was Dennis's office when he shot Easy Rider. It's a little, <laughs> really? uh, a little office on a roof, a little uh, series of offices on a, on a rooftop terrace in uh, Beverly Hills, tiny little offices. Because do you know where you are, man? I said, yeah, I think so. It's my office. <laughs> he goes, no, this is my office. <laughs> So it was always this great adventure to uh, to be on the road with Dennis. And uh, he took me under his wing a bit. He had me come onto the set of Rumblefish and I got to watch Coppola work and, he, and him work with Coppola. Uh, 
among other little soirees with Dennis. And um, so it was kind of payback to do this restoration. Mm. Uh, we thought, well, you know, these things can be very expensive and I wanted to do a great job on it. Yeah. So I consulted my friend, Robert Harris, who's the world's foremost expert on restoration. He restored Napoleon and Bridge on the River Kwai and Vertigo and Rear Window and The Godfather. And uh, he introduced me to a company in Burbank called Roundabout and they're privately owned and they really pitched in to help us make this work uh, on a budget, you know, using the money that we could scrape together of our own and from the Kickstarter and the contribution that uh, Chloe and uh, Natasha made. And so I was going there at strange hours to work in between their, their high paying jobs uh, while they were doing a restoration of Apocalypse Now. And right now they're, uh, they're working on uh, Raging Bull. Uh, so we did an amazing restoration um, and we premiered it at Venice. It was invited to premiere at Venice and then at South by Southwest, which was canceled because of the pandemic. And uh, it, was, it was fortuitous though, because we got to go see Linda Manns right before she became ill to talk about whether she'd come to South by Southwest with us. For listeners who have just tuned in, I am talking with John Allen Simon and Elizabeth Carr, who are some of the people responsible for the restoration of the 1980 film Out of the Blue, directed by Dennis Hopper. And it's going to be playing at the Thornbury Picture House later this week. Just prior, John, you spoke about Linda Mann's her performance in this film is exceptional. I did notice that on the Thornbury Picture House website, there is a content warning of sorts for this film. I just watched it the other day day and it is at parts quite harrowing and you have this young girl at the centre and I love that it has these elements of punk that I think lend so well into her journey. Can you talk a bit more about how CB as a character was formed and and how she was kind of received by audiences particularly in 1980? Well I think you know to give some credit to uh, Leonard Jakir who was the original writer and director the fired fired guy who's, mm-hmm. <laughs> who by the way um i finally got to talk about the movie uh which is one of the blu-ray extras uh coming out and uh he cast her and dennis together as a father daughter which i think is one of the great father daughter uh, combinations of all time linda had had uh, a great reception in terence malick's days of heaven in which she had you know basically a small part but uh, another one of these happy accidents, Malik was having a terrible time in post-production on the movie and he brought her in to do the narration, which she basically improvised according to him. And it's one of the most memorable parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. If, 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 if you remember anything about days of heaven, uh, it's a great movie. You should, but you remember the fields of wheat and you remember her quirky narration, which are really central elements of the, uh, of the film. And, uh, you know, for Linda was not really particularly into punk herself, but she did play drums and she come from a street background. She'd had a really hard scrabble life. And, uh, so she could really relate to CB and she loved Dennis. I mean, talk a little, when we went out, she kind of retired from the film business, not, not particularly voluntarily, but there really weren't interesting parts for her Mm. you know she wasn't Tatum O'Neill she wasn't Christy McNichol 
she wasn't this. Uh... She was Linda Manns. I mean, I think part of what is so stunning in her performance and why audiences are so drawn to her is complete authenticity to every move she makes. And you see the thoughts. I mean, some of some of the most vivid scenes to me are when no one is talking and you just see her emotions, which she's trying to let you not know what she's feeling, but you see it on her face play across. And uh, as John was saying, she adored Dennis and they really uh, connected when they met uh, in Vancouver. And when we went up to see her just in 2020, it was in February, March, she has in her home a little shrine to, to Out of the Blue. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, when I say shrine, I mean, just like CB has the shrine to Elvis in her bedroom, but she has the poster on the wall and there are pictures from her and Dennis at Cannes and then other little mementos from the film. It was really touching. And I don't know how much they saw each other over the years, but that connection really stayed strongly. And, and it was her favorite film. She didn't make very many. She did the Phil Kaufman's The Wanderers and uh, a couple of not as memorable movies, but um, she was really so appreciative that the movie had been restored and had been well received. And uh, she was having health issues. In fact, the, mm. the, the day after we saw her, uh, she got her biopsy results and sadly died uh, a little later that year in August. Uh, but she did some things to support the restoration. She signed some posters that we used as kickstarter premiums and um yeah john very cleverly saved some of the boxes of the vintage posters from the original release that he and dennis did and so linda signed a bunch of those for us and there are still a few available on our website if people would like to know that we'll tell them where but, it is yeah right well out of the blue dennis hopper.com linda was a very special person there that authenticity that you see on screen is who she was in life. Mm -hmm. And she was a little bit of a thing. I'm not even sure she was five feet, but her whole body would erupt in, in laughter, this raw guttural laugh when something was funny and, you know, heavy smoker, heavy coffee drinker. She was, she was something and a devoted, devoted mother and grandmother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And her, you know, she was dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of heaviness because uh, her husband, who'd been a cameraman, actually on a movie that I'd been involved with, uh, The Howling Part Two, I had a, a minor involvement with it. He had had a stroke and she was his sole caretaker. And one of her three boys had uh, died in a motorcycle accident mm -hmm. the year before. But, um, you know, she was still she was still very much so the the person that I'd met uh, in 1980 when we released the movie and, uh, you know, loved, uh, loved the part, loved the character mm. and loved that the movie was going to be seen by new audiences. She'd be so pleased at the amazing reception that it's been getting around the world. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to be able to see it at Thornbury Picture House later this week because it's definitely a film that has stuck with me. And like you say, the performances in this are exceptional. The film itself has got some very heavy elements. Um, I think it's worth noting that there are narratives of incest and there's also alcohol abuse and drug abuse in this film and violence. And yet there is also this wonderfully radical, rebellious 
heart to it and that comes out not just in the score but also in CV herself and it is at times a real joy to watch on screen. And dark humour. I mean, that's <laughs> yes. really what makes it palatable Yes, uh, for the most part. Not everywhere, no. but uh, <laughs> deep abiding dark humour that was both Dennis's and Linda's mm. and, and mine, which is what, and, and a lot of the audience, which is why it's so uh, relatable. Uh, 40 years later absolutely yeah i don't i don't want to give too much i don't want to give anything away but there are moments of real joy in this film i mean just exuberance when when cb is in her element and in her journey you're just rooting for her yes you know go go so but like you say there's uh there's heartbreak too Mm. and stuff. i'm so pleased that that you've restored this so thank you and thank you also for your time tonight it has been such a pleasure talking with you both about this very significant film thank you john and elizabeth i really appreciate your time my favorite quote a review quote of the movie is that out of the blue is a is a sharp shock to complacent faith in civilization (laughs) it's really the it's really the uh underbelly of the american dream and the uh idealism of the 60s gone gone sour in the 80s and uh it's a roller coaster ride even today and i think flick that's what that's what it is when you said at the very beginning why is this film that was made in 1980 so resonant then and so resonant now and that's why because Mm. it speaks truth to power yes and it doesn't hide what's going on still then and now That is so true. And I think you've both captured that so beautifully. Um, Yeah, thank you again so much for your time. Thank Thank you. you, And if you'd like an opportunity to see the restoration of Dennis Hopper's 1980 directorial masterpiece, Out of the Blue, there are still tickets available. Head to thornburypicturehouse.com.au. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford. A big thank you to my guests for their time tonight, Goran Stalevsky, John Allen Simon and Elizabeth Carr. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 